Hi everyone, welcome to the third season of the Bunby Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer of the podcast, Randy Kim. For this third season, we are continuing to explore the theme, Where Do We Stand? For this week's episode, I interviewed Michelle Kim, CEO of Awaken, which provides interactive DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops for a number of leading tech companies across the U.S. She has written articles which you can find on Medium on issues including anti-racism and anti-blackness in the API tech community, combating against anti-Asian racism, and doing effective allyship work. During our conversation, she talked about the barriers that BIPOC employees are still facing with their employers and what companies are failing to do in addressing the systemic racism and microaggressions in their work culture. She spent time breaking down where DEI initiatives fall short and how companies must use best practices to dismantle white supremacy in their environment. Please check out this episode for more on my discussion with Michelle as she shares important insight into how we can all take part in dismantling systemic racism in the workforce. Also, special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argo a Vietnamese-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargao.com or on their Instagram at lawrenceandargao or go to their Facebook page. Hi everyone, my name is Randy. So today I'm here with Michelle Kim. So I welcome you to our show. Thank you so much for being here today. So Michelle Kim is currently the CEO of Awaken and she's been leading workshops on DEI, which is a diversity and inclusion and also doing keynotes on DEI related issues. And so welcome to the show and how are you today, Michelle? I am... I am glad it's Friday. <laughs> yeah, and so how are you coping with the uh, pandemic and also actually in the aftermath of the civic unrest? Because I know in your work, there's has to be a lot of demand for diversity inclusion in the workplace. Yeah, no, it's definitely been a roller coaster to say the least in the past few months dealing with the, the pandemic when it first you know, really started impacting the U.S. We, uh, all of our work prior to the pandemic, 99% of our work was delivered in person. So all of our workshops were delivered in person. So that was a huge change for our entire team and our client base to move virtually. Um, And then shortly thereafter, and the murder of George Floyd happened, that also led to a huge uptick in the demand Um, from the corporate spaces that we work in, in terms of the work that we provide, which has, you know, I think I see that, um, and I'm hopeful, and I'm also a little bit bitter and skeptical, right, about the um, incredible demand that is coming out, and I'm, I'm just saddened that so much had to happen in order for folks to understand the gravity of the situation and how much work is needed to be done to address what is happening in our society today and what has been happening for so long, right? Because this Mm -hmm. is not a new issue. Police killings of Black folks is not a new issue. And yet, I think something about all of these um, tragedies and injustices coming together in such a, you know, storm that woke people up in a different way and i'm hopeful that this time it's different that it's going to stick for a little while longer than what i've seen before Um, but there's definitely you know a lot of different emotions that i'm balancing and i think a lot of people who are doing dei work right now are in similar states yeah and i think like in the wake of the pandemic when companies started to uh lay off or put people on furlough did it affect how companies view DEI prior to civic unrest? Mm. Because especially with budget, they're like, oh, you know, we don't need 
uh, this level of human resources. We don't need these workshops anymore. So did you actually start seeing the mass reduction of DEI initiatives prior to the civic unrest? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's, I think, what's contributed to my skepticism, right? Because we know that when the pandemic happened and the economic downturn started to be seen, the first thing that got cut was what people would think of as the, these extracurricular activities or programming that weren't as necessary in their minds. Um, so I did see a large group, a large number of DEI professionals being laid off, um, their budgets getting cut, people, you know, saying that right now we can't prioritize DEI, people reaching out to awaken the, the number of um, leaves decreased about roughly half uh, when the pandemic hit. And so I think <laughs> with that, and only a few weeks later, uh, we saw an incredible um, increase. We got almost a nine, 950% increase in wow. leaves <laughs> uh, after the, the unrest and the protests that took place. So I, I just want to remind folks that this work has always been ongoing, has always been important, that this is not a momentary thing, that if people are just starting to realize how important this is, welcome to the movement. And I hope that people don't let go of that significance just, after, you know, just because that the media cycle is coming to a halt. Mm. And, and also, you know, like, it, it's just, it's very interesting how the news cycle happens too. Like once a news cycle ends, then it feels like it's back to normal until another uh, incident happens that causes uproars. But I, I do think that like in the work that you're doing, uh, when you have these upticks, especially that you're going through now, how big is the uh, staff at Awaken? Uh, we are, so we have a mix of our full-time staff and a number of facilitators who are spread across the country. So right now we're about 12, 13 folks total, I want to say. And what are your, uh, and what are the companies that you do represent or that you so work with? Yeah, we work with a whole bunch of um, tech companies. So we are a majority in tech and media, and we've been very specific about who we want to target, uh, mainly because of my personal experience in tech, uh, having been you know, in that industry and having seen how DEI is treated and how there is so much foundational knowledge that's missing, we wanted to create space uh, in the tech industry to be able to do that in a little bit more critical way. And we also know the impact that tech can have in society is so great that we wanted to target, you know, both media and tech industries so that we can create some fundamental shifts in our, our world. And what factors uh, led you to, uh, to uh, doing diversity and diversity and inclusion? Uh, what, uh, inspire you to take on this work? You know, I think it's a bunch of reasons, right, in terms of how I got into social justice work in the first place. So I am an immigrant to this country. I, I moved to the United States when I was 13 from South Korea. And I also identify as a queer woman. I came out as queer when I was 16 in high school when I had my first crush on a girl. I was really confused. Uh, and that's when I really began my social justice activism journey. Uh, and most of my activism work as a young person began and took place within the sphere of LGBTQ plus uh, people of color issues. Um, and that really propelled me into learning more about all the other forms of oppressions that are linked. Um, and I was really active in college organizing and uh, doing grassroots activism work. And my first job out of college was in a consulting company, a large global consulting firm, and a very, very different environment than what I was used to. And I felt this incredible cognitive dissonance. I chose the company based on the fact that they were you know, listed on HRC's top most inclusive LGBTQ friendly workplace list. They had a hundred percent perfect score um, according to their rating. So, you know, there are these external sort of marketing mechanisms that help 
signal uh, a certain level of inclusion from the company, right? And, and when I went in, I was so confused and disoriented by the way that folks were talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion because of my background being rooted in social justice work. And it almost felt like DEI was this vaguely familiar but foreign, corporatized, whitewashed, diluted version of social justice work, but it wasn't quite doing justice to the work or, you know, I felt like the integrity of the message was getting lost. Um, so there was a lot of frustration there and I, I think I became disillusioned in my young mind and I was cynical, I was skeptical, I was angry that this is how DEI was happening inside the work, uh, workplaces. And the same thing kept happening when I went into tech in different startups, I was doing client success, uh, professional services work, and it felt that the efforts felt really programmatic, you know, monthly celebrations to, you know, what we call quote unquote, um, conflict-free diversity work, right? That didn't have the, the integrity of the social justice movement that needed to, that I wanted to see in tech. And I think, a huge part of that was that people um, didn't understand the con context around DEI, why this was so important, why this shouldn't be treated as an extracurricular activity, why it needs to be more embedded and intertwined in everyday process and systems and our culture. Um, and uh, I remember sitting in a diversity workshop led by a white woman as an employee at a tech company and thinking, this is our opportunity to wake some people up, right? This is the opportunity for someone external to come in and say the things that need to be said that I can't always say because of the repercussions that I fear and because it's not also my full-time job and I shouldn't have to burden uh, myself with that emotional labor. Um, and I remember being so disappointed and angry at the content of that diversity training, having been so, so, so diluted, whitewashed, and just surface level, and looking around and feeling like these folks that I work with now feel like they are more inclusive as a result of having gone through this really shitty workshop. And now I have to do the cleanup work of having to tell them that we didn't learn anything in this workshop and we need to redo. Um, and I think that that's such a common experience, I think, for so many marginalized people in the workplace, really hoping for change that is genuine, authentic, and real and honest, but not getting that time after time and being cynical and frustrated. And, and I think that's what I wanted to solve. And so mm -hmm. Awaken's work is really rooted in how do we make this a little bit easier for marginalized people in the workplace, right? How do we how do we unburden them a little bit with the education that we can bring and the space that we can create so they can either say the things that they wanna say or we can say the things that needs to be said and named in the space because we don't face those types of repercussions the same way that marginalized people in the workplace do. Um, so that's a long sort of story of how Awaken got started and why we do the work that we do and the way that we do it. That's incredible. You know, it reminds me of this meme. I don't know if you've seen this meme before. It's been very recent. It quotes, what is the academic equivalent of thoughts and prayers? The answer was diversity and inclusion. <laughs> so it, you, you have addressed this in, to your own experiences, but why do you think there's so much skepticism in the way companies try to enforce DEI in the workforce? Because I know like just sharing that experience, I know as a person who's a queer Asian, I have seen attempts at DEI fall short. And, and it also seems to just center on comfort for mm -hmm. white people. It's like, okay, let's just find a way to make this easier for white people to understand in the workplace. Let's, you know, sympathize with marginalized people like you know that's too bad i'm so sad i feel i feel guilty i feel shame and you know but how do we try or how do we try to push companies to go beyond that to really focus on on listening to folks who are marginalized and also the fact that if you're asking 
uh, BIPOC folks to, or queer trans BIPOC folks to share their own experiences, it leaves them out in the open. Are they getting supported by mm -hmm. telling their stories? Because when you're doing these workshops, I can only imagine that there's always a few uh, BIPOCs in the room and they want to share, but they're afraid because they don't feel their HR will support their stories. And by doing so, it caused the company out. So I was wondering how you actually navigate these conversations in the workshop, but also why do we have so much skepticism in the way companies enforce DEI? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to address your question about how do we provide space for the most marginalized people to be able to share their stories in a way that also, you know, to a degree protects them from negative repercussions that happens. I think it's really important that we don't educate white people or people of different privileges at the expense of the most marginalized people in the room. That is one of our core principles and tenets of facilitation at Awaken is that we don't, we don't use, you know, the stories and the pain and the trauma of the most marginalized people in order to educate and benefit um, white people's awareness, right? I think that is a harmful practice that unfortunately is really widely observed in DEI uh, consulting industry. That I think it's really important that we create space where we give marginalized people the agency to share if they want to and if they choose to, um, only to the extent that they feel comfortable and willing. So we have a, you know, uh, a ground rule or a community agreement that we set that is a consensual sharing, that we don't actually force people to share and, uh, you know, divulge their trauma uh, without really understanding that they, you know, have those boundaries that they can draw for themselves. Um, so that's one, I think that's really important. And then the second question around the skepticism, I think it's that every time companies have an external marketing effort that comes before real internal change, that creates cognitive dissonance for the marginalized people in the workplace, that continues to perpetuate the harm and the, and the skepticism and the cynicism that, that employees themselves are going to continuously feel, right? And I think that is so great in um, companies, especially now where you see companies that have never spoken up about racial injustice now putting out Black Lives Matter statements, right? And now then getting called out by their employees saying that you don't actually care about us. <laughs> so this statement feels really disingenuous and inauthentic and in some ways harmful because you are almost trying to virtue signal without having done any of the work that is required uh, for you to be able to um, claim allyship in any way. So I think, you know, so, some things that I always tell executives when we do sessions for executives is let's just be really honest and clear about where we are. And let's also take into consideration the legacy of either harm or work that we haven't done and how that also needs to fit into the narrative that we are creating right now. And we, I don't want companies to say that they're committed to, you know, um, the Black Lives Matter movement or to racial justice if they are not actually going to do something about it. It's actually more harmful, I think, for people to say something that they don't mean and to signal to their own employees that they care when that's only going to leave them feeling that massive cognitive dissonance. So don't say anything at all if you're not gonna do it or if you don't actually believe in it, right? Mm. And I think we also need to have an honest conversation with executives and also people in positions of power at all levels that doing DEI work is going to require some trade-offs that there isn't this magical silver bullet that we can um, use to create a magically inclusive and equitable company overnight, right? That there's going to be some investment that needs to be made, whether it is in the form of time commitments, you know, reducing the speed of hiring or the way that we invest actual dollars around this uh, work. I think people need to be honest about that. And I think oftentimes leaders go into DEI work without really being honest about what they're willing to trade off um, to make that happen. 
And I think that sets them up for failure in the long run because the moment it becomes difficult, the moment it becomes too costly, it's easy to just halt that altogether um, rather than, you know, having anticipated it and working through the challenges that come up. And through your work, uh, how do you have better assessment of companies on whether or not they're taking the best courses of action to address racism and other forms of discrimination and biases um, after your workshops? Do you have a better way of getting an idea whether or not these companies are taking your initiatives mm -hmm. seriously? I think there's a few different ways that you know, anyone who might be looking for a job at a company can sort of look at to see if a company is actually serious about doing, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion work and how far that's going. Number one, I think it's so clearly seen in representation of who's in leadership positions, right? If the vast majority of tech companies have uh, majority white and some East and South Asians in leadership positions, while, you know, at the junior levels, there may have, uh, there may be a little bit more racial diversity. Um, I think companies that are really serious about this start early in their journey in investing in uh, the right sort of proportionate representation of people of color at the leadership level, as well as the rest of the company. And two, I think if people, if companies are really serious about, <clears throat> excuse me, doing DEI work, there needs to be an, an adequate uh, dedication of time and money that goes with that. And it can't just be a monthly, you know, heritage month celebration or right. diversity potlucks that, uh, you know, we are talking about. We actually need to examine how are we looking at the policies and procedures that we have systemically that impact our hiring, recruiting, promotions, evaluations of people's performance and the culture that we are all living and breathing in. And, mm. you know, whenever we measure success for any type of DEI work, we have to listen to the most marginalized people and their opinions and their perspectives on how it went rather than, you know, what the majority says it was, you know, done well, right? So if we were to measure our success of our DEI workshop, by what a bunch of white men saying, oh yeah, that was a great workshop versus all the BIPOC folks in the workshop said that was a really crappy workshop. You know, that would be, that would be an interesting measure of success, right? So we always have to remind folks that the success of your work around DEI is measured by the most marginalized people in your organization and not the majority, which is a foreign concept for a lot of folks working within the capitalist structure because usually you want what's going to get you the most uh, ROI, right? The most return for your investment, which means that you are going to uh, want to gauge how the majority of the company is receiving an initiative. But that is a, you know, easy way, an easy shortcut for you to fall into the trap of diluting or prioritizing the comfort of the majority rather than really focusing on the voices and the perspectives and needs of the most marginalized people in the organization. Mm. And you know, following the COVID-19 crisis, the API community has been you know, dealing with so much of the racial backlash mm -hmm. and discrimination. And as we talk about news cycle, that has since passed, unfortunately. But, but uh, how do we best advocate for ourselves and others in the workplace or in public spaces where we are visible with our skin color, but invisible in our own voices? And especially when you happen to be the only Asian person in that space, because I know from my own experiences, like I remembered when I was an intern for a sports TV network, to me, that was a dream internship, but I was the only Asian person out of a company of 200 plus employees. And I remembered my intern mentor would make microaggressive comments about my culture. And also as a queer person, sometimes if he's watching the New York Mets play and they're a pretty shitty team to this day, um, he would use the word faggot, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remembered, not directly at me, but I just kept thinking to myself, I don't belong here. And I remember like during the economic recession right after I graduated, I was trying to go into these jobs. And one interviewer had asked me, how would you handle being the only Asian person in this office? How do you think you would handle it? Wow. And I think hearing that question 
And this was a, a newspaper, a big newspaper company. And hearing that just crushed me because months ago, my dad was skeptical about me going into that field. He said, they don't hire people like us. Mm. And I get emotional talking about this because hearing that, I was trying to disprove him. I was trying to like say, this, this will change. And my internship advisor at UIC said, oh, you'll be hired because you're Asian. Mm. And I'm like thinking to myself, I don't believe that at all. And it felt very reductive. So hearing, going through all these interviews, I remember my confidence feeling like it was hitting a low, it was continuing to sink because every time I would go into these interviews, I did not feel confident. I look around the office and I'm like, there are mostly young white professionals in these spaces. And I feel like I have to one up or try to be exceptional and really the fact that I did not have the kind of network that many uh, 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 white collar families have that are, uh, that are white. So to go into these spaces knowing that you don't have the networking ability was also already a defeat. So mm -hmm. I, I keep thinking back to that, but like, I think following the COVID-19, you, you know, these memories start to, to hit back at you the racial discrimination you face as a child, but also in the workplace and when you're trying to navigate in spaces that uh, seemingly does not belong to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your stories. It's I, that you're, you know, bringing back many memories for me too, just in terms of that sense of loss and um, confusion too, when you first walk into a very sort of foreign um, setup where you are the only one with your unique set of experiences that may not be the most welcome experience or the most valued experience in a workplace, right? I remember as, um, as an intern, my first internship at a corporate, the consulting firm that I eventually getting, uh, where I eventually got the full-time job at, I remember asking people, you know, what other jobs that they've had before this internship. And for many of the interns who were non, uh, you know, immigrants who were non-Black, mostly East Asian and white, uh, their answers were, oh, this is my first, this is my first job. Or this is my, uh, my other job was tutoring. Whereas I know that so many of people that I knew growing up um, had to work in service jobs. And that was sort of my experience of gaining some sort of economic uh, standing, right? And helping my family financially, navigating this world as an immigrant, learning English. And I think these types of experiences that we have are often not seen as a benefit to the culture that we are having to assimilate in and having to sort of check those parts of me because they're not useful um, and having to sort of mimic the culture that I'm trying to fit into, right? And therefore also losing our own sense of who we are, right? And I think of the conversations that are happening around the model minority myth and also how you know, so many of us in these corporate environments are having this realization that we're still not quite equal, right? And I think there's a lot of Asian folks who have not been a part of this conversation, right? Like you um, or me, and uh, having this reckoning now with the pandemic, seeing the anti-Asian racism, and for the first time ever feeling like, oh crap, we're, we're not quite, there yet. Um, and I think there's a lot of complexities that we need to hold and also understanding how our racism that we experience is also linked so tightly to anti-Black racism that we are witnessing today and for, for in, within our community that we are perpetuating, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just such a complex um, and necessary conversation. Um, 
that I, I, I think us talking about these stories, like you being able to name your historical traumas and your experiences of surviving and, you know, being a part of, you know, majority white institutions as the only Asian person and as a Southeast Asian person, as a queer Southeast Asian person, being an underrepresented minority in um, any of these spaces can have a huge toll. And I, the question that was asked to you about how would you deal with being the only, I think needs to be flipped, right? It's about how they are going to ensure that the space is just as equitable for you to be able to succeed rather than putting that onus on you to have to navigate through all the hoops and um, challenges to thrive. I think that just highlights how people are thinking about the burden of overcoming obstacles, um, having to be navigated by the marginalized people themselves, rather than us really looking at and pointing at the structures and systems that were built to uh, not accommodate people who look like us. Yeah, and I think also not just the burden of telling our own personal experiences, but the burden of feeling like you have to represent an entire continent, which is so unfair <laughs> and such, and, and you know, you like, I can't, ex I can't talk for all Asian Americans because it is again, like not a single story narrative. It is not uh, a monolith. And right. so companies also have to recognize that when we're talking about our own experiences, we're not representing the entire continent here as well. We're just only representing just parts of, or what could be parallels, but it is not a complete story. My story does not begin and end, you know, on the Asian American history. So I think that's also a good way to point that out. Uh, I know that you wrote something on, you wrote a piece on Medium and I saw it on your Instagram, but you address anti-Blackness and you shared key points about important allyship, especially among Asian Americans. And where do we struggle the most in our allyship? And mm -hmm how do we better position ourselves to grow from our mistakes? Because we may be very, um, we may have very good intentions of building solidarity with Black, Latinx, Indigenous folks, but we also still fail or we really make problematic mistakes. But how do we work towards going through our discomfort, because I know it's easy for people to point it out and cancel us, but how do we try to work through those mistakes and how do we uh, achieve trust? Yeah, that's a great question. I think trust is built over time, right? And it needs to account for not just what we're doing today, but the historical legacy of not just us as individuals, but the community that we belong to whole and time after time what I'm noticing is that and even for me there is such a lack of foundational contextual historical understanding of our collective struggles as well as complicity in anti-black racism in this country um, I was not taught that in school right especially being an immigrant having missed a large you know early years when um, but then I, I think about, no, actually, no one learns this in school, so it's not just me, but I think it's by design that we don't learn about our people's history, whether that is in the context of our own struggles with uh, institutional and systemic racism in this country, but also in ways that we have been complicit or perpetuated anti-Black racism in this country. So I think it really needs to start with all of us understanding that there's a huge part of history lessons that we missed purposely, right? Because um, that's by design that we don't learn about these histories that could bring us together. Uh, and that we actually need to, unfortunately, we have to do the hard work of having to dig through um, the true history of how we benefited for so long from the work and activism of black leaders through, throughout centuries in this country for us to even be able to be here and to have benefited from, um, from that. I think there's also this recognition that while we are marginalized as people of color ourselves and as Asian folks, we have very unique experiences of marginalization in this country. We also have, um, especially in the, in the industries that I work in, in tech, 
where East Asians and South Asians are overrepresented compared to the total population of the US that we enjoy some relative privilege. Um, it's not quite, you know, we're white and, and I, I have a huge problem with lumping white people with Asian people because our experiences are not the same. Um, and we are oppressed with, by white supremacy the way, um, and then that cannot be erased and, and, you know, made equivalent. However, there is this recognition that we need to have around the relative privilege that we have compared to our black and brown uh, colleagues, right? And being honest about that and being able to tease that out from our own marginalization, which can coexist, I think is also another really important step in us being able to show up authentically as um, allies, comrades, accomplices um, in this work of do, achieving racial justice. I think there's also a ton of pain that I think folks are experiencing right now in the Asian community when it comes to doing anti-racist work and uh, fighting anti-blackness in their own communities and their families where there is this unspoken challenge. I don't think we talk about this enough the, the language barrier, the cultural barrier that we have with older generations of Asian folks who may have come to this country as immigrants, um, who had their fair share of struggles and who are unfortunately not, um, they have not had access to the education that we had to be able to name some of these dynamics and to have understandings around the historical complexities between the Asian community and the black community. And, the, and the, the painful nature of how for, for folks who were born in the US or who immigrated at a young age who have lost parts of their heritage and culture and their language um, because they needed to survive. Uh, that being a real barrier to having authentic connections right now with their families. I think that's a really painful thing I'm observing um, where we are having to really face our own oppression in the face while trying to fight it at the same time, right? And so I think there's this incredible amount of empathy and uh, also just gentleness that I feel towards our community. And at the same time, a lot of frustration and anger too around, we gotta do more than this, right? We, we have so much work to do within our own community when it comes to anti-Blackness. Um, and colorism too, right? It's not just anti-blackness uh, towards black Americans. It's actually, um, it's deep rooted within our own community and the internalized anti-blackness and internalized racism that we all harbor. That is a difficult thing to unearth, but so necessary, especially in this moment where we all need to be showing up in solidarity with our um, black community. Thank you for, uh, so much for bringing that to the surface because, uh, you know, given what the civil unrest that we're currently dealing with, the Asian American communities are facing this task of we really got to think about the harm that we have caused to Black and Brown communities, uh, the struggle in our relationship with our family members and having these conversations. And, and what I've also been encouraged is seeing the translation videos. Uh, and I think that had to happen a couple of years ago after Philando Castile's murder and, and it got brought up again. And I find it to be so useful. I think one advice that one friend had was just blast it while your mom is cooking uh, food <laughs> in the kitchen. Just, just play it real loud. You don't even have to get her to sit down, just play it. But I think that we're trying to find ways to reimagine our discussions because as I mentioned with other guests uh, for the season, you know, we could be loud on social media. We could be, um, you know, writing op-eds, but our biggest struggle is really with our families who could actually be agencies of change in this as voters, as, as how they treat uh, black customers going into their stores, as, you know, working with, uh, other black brown clients or just mm -hmm. in the neighborhood too like how do we think about calling the cops uh, mm -hmm. when there's danger or suspicion and that suspicion is very racially rooted so I think these are very important areas that we have to confront but also like these are areas that we have to reimagine and how we 
approach uh, these issues so that we do not cause further harm into these communities because when black and brown communities are getting harmed, eventually it just goes into our community. Our community gets harmed too by police brutality. It gets harmed by institutional racism, uh, right. which also brings up the current election atmosphere. Uh, I saw this on your website too, and this was uh, taken from the American Psychological Association Wakefield Research Fortune, where it says, since the 2016 presidential election, one in four employees have experienced diminished productivity and more stress. 87% of employees are distracted reading political social media posts during the day. Nearly 50% of employees saw political conversations turn into an argument. I'm one of those 50%. 24% uh, <laughs> of tech workers reported having felt discriminated against at their current companies due to their race, gender, age, religion, or sexual orientation. 57% of workers said they did not know what actions their company is taking to address the issue. An additional 25% did not believe their companies were taking any actions. So with these statistics, we've seen the Trump administration working towards stripping rights of employees, especially those of color, gender, or sexual identity. What effect has the Trump administration in the past few years have had on employee rights and how companies enforce HR policies and what could it look like in the future should he get elected again? God, I hope not, but. <laughs> I mean, what impact has the administration not had on all things related to our lives, right? Whether that's employment, whether that is immigration, whether that is racism. I think we, what we're seeing is this incredible um, honesty and how oppressive and racist this country has always been. And now it's showing without any remorse. So I think that the, this is the time, and this has been the time where we get to be clear about where we stand, right? Companies get to be clear on where they stand. And the only thing that I ask of everyone is let's just be really honest with ourselves about what we say we believe in and what we're willing to do to actually be aligned to those values, right? And I think, you know, my dear, dear colleague and someone that I so, so respect um, who does <clears throat> DEI work too and an executive coach, Stacey Parson of Dignitas Agency, she asked the core question that um, I borrow often, which is, are you who you say you are, right? Are you who you say you are in these moments when there is a clear choice that we get to make about who we support and how we support and how we show up in these movements and how we ask those questions of ourselves to be able to stay in alignment with what we say that we believe in and who we say we are. Um, and, you know, I think something that's really important for Asian Americans and Asians in this country and all generations of Asian folks to realize is how do we make the connection really clear around all these issues that are happening, right? When there is a conversation around building the wall or banning Muslim folks from coming to this country or when there is mass incarceration of Black people um, or there is ICE deportation. How do we actually understand that these are all Asian issues too? That there's no separation of these issues from anti-Asian racism. That there are, you know, Asian trans people. There are Asian uh, undocumented people, right? There are Asian incarcerated people. That there are people in our community represented in all of these issues. And furthermore, the same issues that are um, oppressing us the same sort of force, the foundational force of white supremacy and capitalist system, the same forces that oppress us is the same force that's oppressing uh, other communities of color and other marginalized communities. If we can make these connections really, really clear that when we fight for ourselves, we're actually fighting the same force and therefore we also need to fight for um, other marginalized groups. I think that connection often is missed when we are talking about and re when we're reacting solely to you know, the hate crimes against our own people, but we fail to recognize that that same force is who is 
uh, what is killing um, black people on the streets. And uh, I think that's, that's an important connection that we always have to be reinforcing and making. What advice would you give to someone who is of color or of sexual identity that is struggling with a company that is not being so inclusive or there's microaggressions happening in the workplace. And, and there's a lot of skepticism of going up to HR because HR is seen as protecting the company's interests rather than of the employees. So what advice would you be able to give when a person who is feeling oppression does not know what to do, especially when they're in a workplace where they may not feel supported and that their jobs are in jeopardy. I know that also hinges on local, federal, state laws too. Mm -hmm. Because I know Illinois, for example, is an outfell state, and I know that um, the Supreme Court just passed that ruling on, on anti-LGBTQ job discrimination. So I'm very curious to know what advice would you give to someone who is going through uh, these challenges at the moment? Yeah, I think there are multiple layers to that kind of situation where there are things that we can do at a personal level, interpersonal level, and organizational level. Um, it's tough because, you know, depending on your own identities and your social identities and intersectionalities, you may actually have a lot more difficult time um, trying to get another job, right? So I hesitate from saying to people just blanketly, um, like, vote with your feet or just, just, you know, quit your job and go somewhere else because the reality is that the unemployment rate and the, the, the discrimination against um, people with different social identities, especially if you are a person of color, especially if you're black or brown, especially if you're indigenous, um, especially if you're, you know, uh, uh, you know, all of those identities and, or either any one of those identities and queer or trans, right? Like your odds get slimmer and slimmer and slimmer as you try to look for other jobs. It just takes longer <clears throat> for you to make that jump. I just want to name that, um, and of course, that is an option, right? To be able to say, you know what? This is not the kind of place that I want to um, put my own talent into. Um, however, I think the reality is a lot more complex than just being able to leave and get another job for so many of the marginalized groups. Um, and I think, you know, just fundamentally knowing your own rights is really important. I think oftentimes um, the legal uh, world is not, our friend, right? We know that it's really difficult and complex to navigate the world of um, the criminal justice system as well as sort of anything that happens inside the workplace. The laws are often not as clear and it's difficult to use um, to get justice. And this is coming from my, not only my work, but my own personal experience of having experienced and witnessed um, harassment, retaliation, and bullying at different levels inside companies. And the, you know, it's important that I think you seek outside help, not just relying on internal HR. Because, uh, you know, as much as there are HR folks who are, who have the best interests of the employees, oftentimes they are serving the best interests of the company. And so I think it's important for folks to just understand what their options are by talking to outside counsel or have, um, having a community of folks who can direct them in the right uh, direction. So I think also seeking mental support is really important because that could be really, really taxing if you're going through something like that. Um, so having a solid, solid um, network of support, whether that's inside the company or outside the company and just making sure that you're taking care of your own mental well-being. Uh, throughout this entire process is going to be really important. Um, and just a, as a legal sort of defense, I think documenting your experience um, as soon as you experience anything is also just a practical tip that I always give to folks is just document what happened, when it happened, and um, just be detailed about how you are, you know, experiencing it. And I think lastly, uh, it's so easy for folks to be gaslit when they are experiencing harm in the workplace. That, you know, you might tell someone what you experienced and hear folks say things like, ah, oh, that's not what they meant. They didn't mean it like that. Or are you sure that's what happened? And so I just wanna, you know, encourage folks to trust 
your own experience and to not discount that and to value your emotions, right? Like what you feel in your gut, what you feel in your body is valid. And it, it's, it's easy for us to be in an environment where we second guess ourselves and to doubt our experience and to be gaslit. And I think that's really unfortunate that we are continuing to condition ourselves to not believe our own stories. Um, so that's, that would be my last piece of advice. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for really bringing so much insight into the work of DEI and also the complexities of and flaws and opportunities that DEI can really bring to these companies and also to most importantly the workforce. Uh, also uh, lastly what where can we find you and where can we follow your work and yeah and what also upcoming projects are you currently working on? Yeah uh, you can find me on all the social media channels. I am the most active on LinkedIn, so folks can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, and I do have an Instagram account that I try to stay active on, but it's not always easy. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter uh, as well. There's and a lot of great. There's a lot of great work. There's a lot of great uh, posts that you put on Instagram, which is how I found you because you. Oh, have thank you. Real good. You have some real good, informative tips. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and I do write often on Medium. So my blog is where I get to sort of really go deep into the nuance of different topics that I'm grappling with. So uh, you can follow me there. And I am, and I'm not sure if this is going to come out too late probably, but I am working with uh, someone that I really admire and his courage that I've always respected, Ellen Powell. Um, I am working with Ellen to uh, educate and to provide discussion spaces for Asians and Asian Americans in tech. And we have our first sort of discussion session set for next Thursday on the 16th. Thank you so much for your time, Michelle. And really, uh, thank you for doing this important, uh, necessary work. And really wishing you and your staff all the best as you are educating these companies, but also giving space to uh, BIPOC employees who are not feeling seen at the current moment or who are trying to find their voice in in their work and also in their existence. So really thank you so much. I hope that everyone follows Michelle and uh, the company Awaken to get updates and to uh, better your knowledge of how to be better allies, how to be better advocates for ourselves and to each other. So thank you so much for your time, Michelle. Thank you so much. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunmi underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Mm -hmm.